Good morning. We're reading Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made, widely know, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard as was told them. Thank you so much, Katie, for reading. Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for the time we get to spend worshiping together. Father, we pray that even now you would turn this good news into great joy in our hearts. Father, we pray that as we reflect, we would remember all the amazing things that you've done for us through your son, Jesus. And Father, as we come off of a season where we are celebrating your son's birth, Lord, send us out into the world as people who are ambassadors, who have good news to share. Father, people who have been rescued, saved, commissioned, and sent. So, Father, speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, how do you know it was a good Christmas? How do you know that the gifts that you got were loved, and everybody had a good time. How do you know that the kids are happy? I'll offer one answer to that question. You know it's a good Christmas when the gifts get used, when the clothes get worn, when the shoes get put on, when everything gets unwrapped. You know it's not a great Christmas when at, in the evening, after everything's cleaned up, there are still some unopened boxes of toys. You can tell that one was not a hit if that happens. And yesterday, if your family is anything like our family, you can tell, especially with the kids, that they love their gifts because they immediately begin using them. 
or they immediately begin wearing them. Like our niece yesterday, we could tell she loved hers because she had sparkly dance shoes and a tutu and a new shirt and a new unicorn cape all on at the same time. And she loved those presents. You could tell I had a good Christmas because I got a new pair of boots and I put them on with my PJs uh, because I was so excited about that. And that's the way we typically experience joy. When you have joy in something, you take an action. There are very few joys that you keep bottled up inside and nobody on the outside can tell that you are currently filled with joy. Good news, good presents, a great Christmas translates into action. And if you look carefully at this story that that Katie read for us this morning, everybody who gets good news does something. Everybody who gets good news of great joy expresses it some way. And so this morning, I have a very simple message for Christmas. God has given us good news that brings great joy. That's what Christmas is all about, good news that brings great joy. So let me start with the good news part. So in this story, we have an announcement of something that has happened. And this is what Christmas really is. In fact, this is what the word gospel means. We think of the gospel as some kind of historical event, but the word gospel means an announcement. It's from an old English compound word that means God spell. So God's spell. And spell in that time meant a story. God's story, the story that God is telling about what the universe is like and what he's done to bring about restoration. In fact, the word in this passage that we get our word translated gospel from is the word euangelion, which sounds really funny in Greek until you realize that's the same word as evangelism or evangelical. Or there's a, there's a little Christian college up in Missouri and they're called the evangels. That's the word for gospel. And that word outside of the Bible just means giving someone a message. So a herald would carry a gospel. They would come and announce a gospel in town. This is the kind of word that you see in other writings where an emperor is dead and a new emperor is born or crowned. That is a gospel. And they would send out heralds. People that are, their only job is to say things that have happened into all the little towns, and they would proclaim the gospel that there is a new king. Now, it's fitting that this is what the angels say in this story. We have come to you bearing a gospel. There is a new king. There's an announcement of something that God has done to turn the world upside down. That's the gospel. Now, we sometimes think about the gospel more as something that's an option among many. Will you or will you not believe the gospel? And that's biblical language, but I think what I want to clarify is the gospel happened, whether you believe it or not. It's a historical event. The universe was changed, and your response to it is personal, but the gospel is universal. One of the pastors I know explains it this way. Sometimes we treat Jesus and the gospel like he's running for political office. And it's if we can just get the word out, and if we can knock enough doors, and if we can raise enough money, then maybe we can get this guy elected to something. But he's already king. That's what the gospel is. He's already king. We're not trying to make him king. We're not trying to convince people that he is the king. He is the king of the universe. That's what the angels came to say is, there's a new king. This is the good news. God has come to earth, and he has set his king 
on the throne forever. That's the gospel. So why is this good news? Why is that news good news? Why does it bring about great joy? And I have three things from our story this morning that is good news of great joy. And here's the first thing. Good news that we have peace with God. Good news that we have peace with God. Now, if you've been following along in Advent, a lot of the the texts that we've used are right around this narrative, either telling about Jesus' birth that's to come, talking about what happens when Mary is visited by the angel and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, talking about the wise men who come and worship. All of these things have a similar storyline, peace for those that used to be at enmity with God and now are part of his family. The whole Christmas story is about making peace between God and humanity. Now, you might wonder to yourself, why, I, why do we need peace with God? I've never done anything that would be offensive to God. But actually, if you open the first page of the Bible, you realize that every person has found themselves in the wrong side of a war against God. In fact, human rebellion is talked about this way all through Scripture, that we have sided, we have cast our allegiance, we have sworn ourselves into another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And if you trust in Christ, what happens is you're actually transferred from one kingdom to another. Your allegiance changes. Your alliances change. Your disposition changes. The team that you're playing for changes. And so the story of the Bible from the opening chapters to the very end is about God setting up a kingdom and turning his enemies into his friends. So the story of the Bible and our individual part in it is from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. And in this story, we see a couple of things about this peace that God is making. The first thing is that he is so pleased with his son that he's willing to look through his son to any person who trusts in him. This is the most amazing thing about what God has done, is that somehow he found a way to take sinful people and make them right again. Somehow he found a way to look at you And say, I see you like I see my perfect, sinless son. And because of that, you get to be a part of his family. Now, the thing about this is, the gospel is both the most exclusive thing that's ever been had, and it's the most inclusive thing that's ever been had in the history of the world, and I'll tell you why. It is inclusive because it is open to everyone. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be any special kind of person. You don't have to have anything that you bring except for your need. But it is exclusive in the sense that there is only one way. There's only one Savior. There's only one King. There's only one way to deal with your sin, and it's through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of the characters in this story because If there's anybody here this morning that believes that's good, but I'm not really a church person, or that sounds great, but it doesn't really apply to my past or my situation or my sin, I want to point your attention to verse 8. So in this story, Mary and Joseph go because of the census. They get to the town of Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn, and they have the baby, and the only people that are around are shepherds. Now, we think kind of we, we kind of have this Christian mystical love for shepherds. Jesus was like a shepherd king. David was a shepherd. Shepherds are great. All through the Bible, Jesus is portrayed as the good shepherd. 
But in this day, shepherds were the bottom of the bin. You did not go into shepherding if you had other options. If you were a socially well-thought-of person, you would not be a shepherd. Shepherds had the worst reputation. They were known for being thieves. They were dishonest. They were dirty. They were not able to worship in the temple because they were around the sheep all the time. They lived out on their own, away from people. If anything, they were invisible to the rest of society. And Jesus is born, and the angels decide not to go back to Herod's palace not to go back to the Pharisees and the scribes in town, not to go to the people that were upwardly mobile, but they go to the shepherds. Now, that alone would be surprising enough, but they give us another detail about these shepherds. These are not just any shepherds. They are shepherds who are tending flocks in between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So these two towns are six miles apart, which then was kind of a long way, but for us now, they're, they're connected. And the angels come, and they speak to these shepherds. And if you shepherded sheep in between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you had one specific job. Any sheep that was found between these two towns was reserved for sacrifices in the temple. These fields that the shepherds were watching their flocks in at night were home to the sacrificial lambs of Israel. These, these sheep were of a very high caliber because they needed to be without blemish. They needed to be offered in Jerusalem. And so in some ways, this was a very important shepherding job. But here's the catch. These shepherds were raising sheep that would be sacrificed for sins, and they could not partake of the sacrifice. See, these shepherds were not welcome in the temple. They were unclean. They were not supposed to come there. What they did is they raised the sheep that would be sacrificed that the sacrifice would never cover them. So these shepherds hear news from the angel that someone has come to do something for them. They'd lived their entire spiritual life being right on the fringe, always close to the action but never really in, always knowing about what God was doing but never actually open to what God was doing in their life. See, in Israel, what would happen is you would sacrifice so that you could stay the wrath of God for a certain period of time. But these shepherds had no way of doing that. They couldn't partake in peace with God even though they were supplying the lambs that would make that peace. So then the angel shows up and he says, I've come to bring you good news. Fear not, good news of great joy and that will be for all people. And I wonder if the implicit message there is including you guys, including you shepherds. This isn't good news just for everybody else. This is good news for all people. God has provided his own sacrifice. Born this day in Bethlehem is a different kind of lamb. The one who will take away the sins of all the world. The one who is the final sacrifice. You never have to offer a sheep or a goat or a dove again because this lamb born in Bethlehem is going to pay for everyone's sins. So what do the shepherds do? They go, right? They go. It says, when the angels went away, they looked at each other and they said, we've got to go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been said to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph. Now, I think Mary and Joseph, this has got to be a huge eye roll moment. They've just given birth to the king of the universe and shepherds show up. And uh, these are not people that you would leave your kids around. And all of a sudden, God has invited those people to the manger to worship him. 
In fact, what we talked about last week was the Magi. And if you have the shepherds on one hand and the Magi on the other, you have bookends for all of the human experience. You can't get lower than shepherds. You can't get higher than Magi. And so if you're in between, this lamb was slain for you. Good news that we are at peace with God. Second thing, good news that death has been defeated. Good news that death has been defeated. Notice what happens next. So this, this is something I noticed this week as I was reading back through this story. And this story is one that can get so rote. We've probably heard this a million times. And so we've got to come to it again with fresh eyes. And I noticed this time that in verse 10, you have one angel. So one angel shows up and begins speaking to the shepherds. And what happens is what happens when angels show up everywhere in the Bible. So we think of angels as kind of a disarming little baby playing a harp or little cherubs that are in togas. And we think, man, if I saw an angel, that would be so awesome. It'd be amazing. They're worshiping God. That's not what happens when angels show up in the Bible. Every time an angel shows up, people freak out. I mean, they fall on their faces like they were dead, it says in certain places. They say, woe is me, don't kill me in other places. Here the shepherds are terrified. The appearance of angels is a terrifying thing to see. And this angel shows up, and you've got to think like up in heaven, they've got to do some PR work with these angels. Because every time you see an angel, they say, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know it looks like you should be afraid, don't be afraid. And usually the angel has to pick them up, dust them off, put them back on their feet, or else they're not going to listen to a word that the angel says. The angels are messengers of the Lord. And this angel, this lone angel that shows up at the beginning of the story, comes with the message. It comes with the gospel, the message of the good news. And then, after these people have been warmed up a little bit, after the shepherds have been shocked and they've come back to their senses, notice what happens next. In verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Okay, shepherds were not ready for this right from the get-go. They see one angel and now a host of heavenly angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know about your Bible or your translation. My, mine says host here which is not a word that we typically use in any area other than church, right? I've never heard people use the word host like this when they're not describing a group of things like angels or like when I was in high school, our mascot was the saints. And sometimes our announcer would say, a host of saints in on the tackle. But otherwise, you would never hear this word used. And so I want to translate this a little bit differently. This word is a military term. Think about like a legion would be a good, uh, a good word for this. Or something like a division or a troop. This is a military designation. And the word I want to use this morning and suggest is the word vanguard. This is a vanguard of angels. What a vanguard is, is it is the first advance set of troops who are conducting an invasion. I like to think of it this way. This appearance of angels is a military conquest. This is not a choir of angels. It is a singing army of angels. And they have actually come to invade earth. Now, they're not coming to invade so that angels can take over. What they're doing is they're declaring that the war has begun against the kingdom of death. I like to think about it this way. On, at about two in the morning on June 6, 1944, 
Six gliders dropped paratroopers into rural France. And a few hours later, what we now know as D-Day began. In fact, they called it Operation Overlord. And they amassed 150,000 troops. They came in over 6,000 ships and 2,300 aircraft to establish a beachhead in occupied territory. In fact, I think this was probably one of the most amazing military operations in history. If you know me at all, you know I love Winston Churchill. He's one of my heroes. And, and in the House of Commons that afternoon, he said this, this vast operation is undoubtedly the most complicated, most difficult that has ever occurred. It involves tides, winds, waves, visibility both from the air and from the sea, the combined employment of land, air, and sea forces in the highest degree of intimacy and in contact with the enemy and with conditions that cannot fully be foreseen. What they needed to do was they needed to send a vanguard to secure a base of operations to invade enemy territory. And over the next 10 days, they funneled 500,000 troops through those beaches. And over the next few months, they funneled millions of people through that one point. This is what God is doing at Christmas. He has sent the vanguard. He's sent the Savior to an unsuspecting village, Bethlehem, to a very unsophisticated place, the extra room in an inn born in a manger. But what he's done is he's established a beachhead against the kingdom of darkness. And D-Day against death began on this night in Bethlehem, and it will end when Christ returns. And you'll notice if you read the book of Revelation, when Christ returns, what does he bring with him? The rest of the army. You'll see this same word there, the whole host of heaven, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands to come and declare the kingdom of God has fully arrived. Now, what is he doing in the meantime? He's taking occupied land back. That's what Christ came to do. He came so that you and I who trust in him are now emissaries in a foreign land. We live in the land of death. We live in the land of darkness. But what God is doing from then until he comes again is he is establishing little strongholds through us in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Little pockets of salt on the earth. Little bundles of light shining in the darkness. What Jesus came to do was slowly and subversively conquer the kingdom of death. You know, the songs of Christmas, we've spent a lot of time singing Christmas songs this year, and one of the reasons is not just because they bring a lot of joy, but because they have such profound meaning. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, my favorite Christmas song this year, I could have a different one next year, but my favorite one this year has been Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the reason for that is those lyrics are packed with reminders. When we sing these around the house or we come to church and we see the words on the screen, we're reminded of what God is doing. I love this verse. It says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. God is invading the kingdom of darkness. But here's the, here's the coolest thing about what God is doing. This is a subversive victory. This is not the way that you and I would typically think that you would conquer death, because how does God conquer death? 
By dying. By dying. How does God conquer lack of faith? Through suffering. How does God remove idols? By showing us that they're worthless even as we pursue them. I think of the passage that Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. This just summarizes God's strategy for the universe. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also give us all things? That is the best promise in your Bible. That God already gave you the most valuable thing in the universe. How could you doubt that he's going to give you everything else you need? And it says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's the judge. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised from the dead. He conquered death by dying, and we will too. Unless he comes back, we are all going to die, and by dying, conquer over death. He died. He was raised from the dead. He's now at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. He's asking God for what we need. Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Now, listen to this, because these are the things that Paul thought were the normal experiences of the Christian life. Who could possibly separate us from the love of God? Could it be tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, listen to this. In all these things, not the triumphant moments, in all these things, that would be the tribulation and the persecution and the sickness and the famine and death. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him, through Jesus, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the subversive victory of God in our lives, that he's turning suffering into perseverance. He's turning our persecution into evangelism. Did you ever hear the quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What happened in early church history is that the Romans decided that they didn't like Christians, because what Christians were saying is there's another Lord besides Caesar, and we're not going to bow to Caesar anymore. So what they did was they tried to stamp out Christianity by killing all the Christians. That's a very worldly way of solving the problem. We don't like these guys, let's get rid of them. And so they thought, if we just kill all the Christians, Christianity will go away. They should have known that they already killed the Savior and he came back from the dead. But they weren't up on their theology. They just thought, let's just get rid of these guys. And what happened was, the more they killed the Christians, the more people said, I have got to have what they have. I've got to have the hope after the grave that they had. I've got to put my life in danger to care for the sick and the dying like they did. I've got to have this confidence in what God is going to do. And 300 years after Christ, half the Roman Empire was Christian. It didn't happen just because they had great PR campaigns, great preachers, great materials that they were passing out. It happened because they lived and suffered and died for what they believed in. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And now your life, if you're in Christ, is part of what the angels proclaimed on that night, a new kingdom, the war against death, the war against suffering and sin and injustice that will finally be made right when Jesus comes again. Your greatest ministry in the new year might be through your suffering. 
Your, the greatest thing that God does through you against the kingdom of darkness and death might not be pleasant. But what God is doing is he's sending his people out to take land against the enemy. The third thing is, the good news is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. I was listening to Handel's Messiah the other day, not just because we're uppity, just because I think it's got such great lyrics to it and that hallelujah chorus. I mean, that's what I'm talking about, the kind of joy that stirs you into action. I just love that. And the lyrics sometimes get lost in all the chorus and the instruments, and the lyrics to that song are so amazing. And so it's this whole long symphony, and every word of it is Scripture. So Handel writes this this symphony in April of 1742. He wrote it in like three weeks, which is just amazing. And the management of this music hall in Dublin, where he's going to release this um, symphony, have sent out word to the women, don't wear hoops in your dresses when you come to this, because we are going to need every inch of space that we have. So they come in these scandalously slim-fitting dresses so that they can pack more people that have ever been in this opera house, ever, and they debut the Messiah. People were so astounded that it sold out show after show after show after show. And I don't think it's because it's such great music. I think because it was a time when the greatest artists in the world were still fixated on praising God. You know what the amazing thing is? Things like the Messiah are the things that are going to last into eternity. Because the praise of God in the new heavens and the new earth will never, ever cease. It will be like that feeling you get when you see something that is so powerful and so wonderful and so awe-inspiring that it actually leads you into worshiping God. That's the kind of thing that we will be doing for eternity. And I love the thought that there were people then, and there are still people now, who are using their gifts to draw people up into praise to God. The lyrics of that hallelujah chorus, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord, and he, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. I just love that song because it reminds us that you may not see it now, but Jesus is king. His kingdom will endure forever. It will never be shaken. It will never be taken away. It will never be compromised. And Jesus himself will be king over his people forever. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of kingdom does he lead? I want you to think for a moment of the best and worst boss you've ever had in your life. And think about what a difference a good leader can make over the culture of where you work, okay? This is, everybody has been in an experience before where the culture that's been created around you makes your life miserable, or the culture created around you makes your life so so much more joyful. I think my first job was as a sandwich artist, and I worked at Subway as a 16-year-old, and I was working for this night manager, and... um, I got to know him really well because we would work every evening, and I don't know if you guys know this, not that many people come into Subway late in the evening, but we were open until midnight, and so we, we spent a lot of time talking about X-Men is really what we did, if you want, if you want me to be honest. As a 17-year-old, I thought, this is amazing, until one day, the day manager, who I'd only seen once, I'd only seen him when I got hired, came in, 
And I was the only one working there, and he says, hey, so we've had a little bit of a mix-up here. Um, have you ever stolen any money from the register? And I was like, no. No, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to open the safe for the cash drops. Like, I've, I've never done it. He's like, okay. I didn't think you had, but I wanted to make sure. Uh, your old boss, we found out he'd been stealing money, so he's fired. And I was just going to make sure that you weren't in on it, because if you're not, then you're our new night manager. <laughs> Oh my gosh, a management material at 17 years old? And uh, I realized slowly looking back, everything started to make sense to me about the culture that this guy had created. Like, for example, every time it was time to count the cash, I was cleaning the bathrooms. It was just this amazing realization of how he had orchestrated all these things to his own ends. And honestly, it was a breath of fresh air to be out from under his leadership. What he had done was create a culture of secrecy, and he was two-faced. He didn't, in, in, he didn't inspire trust, obviously. And what happened in the end was I was left unprepared, without a leader, without a culture, and I had to build from scratch. Now, this is kind of funny because you don't think of workplace culture at Subway. But when you do think of workplace culture in a corporation or in a business, it can make all the difference as to whether you keep employees, whether people have good morale, whether people want to be there, whether they recommend it to their friends and their family. And I want to suggest to you that those are just a small picture of what God is doing. He is creating a new culture in his kingdom. And, I, and if you look at it this way, this kind of talk is everywhere in the Bible. So in Isaiah 16, there's a prophecy about what Jesus' kingdom will be like. And in Isaiah it says, when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. Think about this. The ruler of the universe his main descriptor about how he relates to his people is he loves you. He loves you. His love never ceases. It's steadfast, it's enduring, and he will sit on the throne in faithfulness, judging and seeking justice, and doing what is right. God is creating a kingdom in which injustice ceases, in which sorrow goes away, in which your number one sense of being governed is that your ruler has steadfast love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a picture of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And he starts out by saying this, this is the way to truly be blessed. This is what it means to really flourish. This is what it means to be whole. Not by getting angry or getting even, but by reconciling. Remember he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not by saying what you need to to get ahead or just to get by, but by speaking the truth in love. Not by conquering in such a way that other people serve you, but by serving others. Think about the joy that you feel when you give a present at Christmas that someone truly loves. That's the way of the kingdom. Giving yourself away by serving others. God takes care of his people. He shows that in this story. There's a census that's issued in this story, and, it, and we, t- we typically think of censuses as just routine, population dynamic, counting exercises. Their censuses had a very different purpose. It's so they, it's how they knew how much tax they could extort out of a certain area back to Rome. 
This census that was supposed to be a decree of taxation actually brought Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem so that God could set everyone free. They wanted to know how much money they could make from these people, but God was busy paying for people's sins. No room in the inn means that he has been at the lowest place and everybody is welcome. Announcement to the shepherds means no one has escaped God's notice. The announcement that Jesus is king means that we now live in a new world, a new kingdom. It can never be shaken or defeated. It will never run its course. It will never grow weaker, but it will increase for all eternity. And the good news is you are a part of it. You are a part of it. So here's the announcement. Here's the good news. For unto you is born this day a Savior, Christ the Lord. Welcome into the kingdom of God. And you'll notice what happens with every one of these characters. They go and do something. When Mary hears the words of the angel, she worships God. She sings a song about God's faithfulness. When Joseph dreams, he changes his entire life plans. He doesn't set aside his commitment to Mary. He pursues her. He takes her back to Bethlehem for the child to be born. When the Magi see the star, they pack their bags, they set off, they travel hundreds of miles to worship God. When the shepherds hear the news, they go into Bethlehem and they fall down and they worship at the feet of this Savior. The only thing you can't do with good news like this is do nothing. The challenge for us is God has too much in store for those that he loves. The good news that is great joy translates into something. The kingdom that he's establishing, the enemies that he's forgiving, the relationships that he's reconciling, the missionaries that he's sending, the testimonies that he's writing, the friends who need truthful encouraging, children who need love and training, a king who deserves our worshiping. So my charge for us this morning, how do you know it's a good Christmas? When you put it on, wear it around, get used to it, put it into action. Christmas for us means taking part. The announcement has been made, there's a new king. You have peace with God, your sins have been forgiven. Start to live like you're in a new world with a new king. Let me pray. Father, thank you for all the wonderful blessings that come in being a part of your kingdom. Father, thank you that we, when we weren't even thinking about you, in fact, when we were rebelling against you, so undeserving, you came for us. You sacrificed for us. You bought us. So, Father, we ask you this morning to turn that news into joy. Turn it into the kind of joy, Lord, that doesn't fade in the first couple of weeks of the new year, but turn it into joy that powers us to do what you're calling us to do, to love the people around us, to be radiant lights in our families. Father, help us to understand just how much you've put at our disposal as part of your kingdom, as part of your family. Father, I pray that this church and the surrounding areas would be so impacted by the people who know what it's like to be loved by you. So, Father, would you do that in our hearts this morning? Would you fill us up, Lord? Would you fill us to the brim with joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.